Welcome to today's Blackfield Information Security webcast. If this is your first time ever joining us for a webcast, thanks for being here. If this is your second, third, fourth, fifth, 100th time for being here, thanks for coming back. We appreciate it. Uh, we enjoy sharing our knowledge with the community. That is what we do. We have a community of 20,000 members on Discord where we get together. And so if you want to join that, the link will be here in Good Webinar or on YouTube, wherever you choose to watch. Uh, the community is going to help answer your questions. So if you ask a question inside Discord, if it doesn't get answered, we'll see if Bo can answer it at the end. But we're not going to stop Bo while he presents today unless something bad happens, like <laughs> to the equipment or anything else. So we have today with us Bo Bullock. He is a uh, pen tester here at Black Hills Information Security. And Bo, you've been around for a long time. You create tools like Domain Password Spray. and Seven years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the first hires at Black Hills. And I've known you for years. I met you at Sands back when I worked there, and I watched you play NetWars. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you were one of the people I called when I said, should I come work at Black Hills? Because I wanted I was to like, see. Yeah, yes, please do. <laughs> yeah. And so thank you so much for joining us today. If you ever need a pen test, Threat Hunt, or Red Team, or any of those things, you know where to find us. But that's not why we're here today. We're here for this webcast with Bo. So I'm going to turn it over to you. It's all yours, Bo. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. Thank you all so much for being here today. Today's talk, Getting Started in Pen Testing the Cloud, Azure. So this talk is really meant to be a primer for Azure pen testing. So I teach a four-day class where I, I basically walk through the entire methodology of attacking cloud environments, not just Azure, AWS, and, and, and GCP as well. But in that class, I cover a lot of Azure stuff. What I wanted to do is, is basically treat this talk as a kind of primer to go over, here's all the things that I think, if you want to get started attacking different cloud environments, specifically Azure, today, you should be able to take this presentation and kind of go off and have, have a decent level of success knowing, knowing at least the, the various terms and what you're up against. Hopefully, throughout today, this is going to help make you kind of aware of some of the common terms associated with Azure assessments, as well as some of the potential attack surface. My name is Boba Look, and I am a uh, pen tester, red teamer at Black Hills Information Security. I, like I said, I, I wrote a course called Breaching the Cloud, got a few certs. I primarily run red team engagements and uh, cloud assessments recently. Historically, like, like I said just a few minutes ago, I've been here for seven years um, at Black Hills and kind of covered the gamut of, of different types of testing, you know, web apps, wireless, all, all the things. But over the last couple of years, I've really focused heavily on just doing red teaming and uh, cloud assessments. So throughout that experience, I've been able to spend a lot of time focusing hard on the methodology of how to attack cloud environments. I also written a number of tools. A lot of them are out on GitHub, which we'll actually talk about a few of them today. And then I've also, uh, I'm also, I produce some synthwave metal music uh, for a project called No Bandwidth. All right, so roadmap. First things up, what we're gonna look at right off the bat is looking at identifying attack surface. And the reason is because this is, in my opinion, one of the most important areas right up front of any sort of cloud-based assessment. We're gonna talk about a lot of the different angles you can approach Azure from because a lot of them are not clear immediately and some of them take a little bit of knowing that they actually exist and identifying those methods before you even engage in, an, in, in a cloud-based assessment. The second thing we're gonna talk about, we're gonna go right into recon and external attacks. So we're gonna look at things like, how can we identify what authentication mechanisms that, that a cloud service uses? What kind of external attacks can we carry out? Are we able to hit public resources that are, that are hosted in, in Azure? Then we're gonna look at authentication. Authentication is actually a, a fairly large section of this presentation due to me basically thinking that this is one of the most important things. When it comes to authentication, there's a lot of configuration issues that can, can arise from not configuring things correctly. A lot of the time, those kind of configurations are, they, they can tend to be pretty easy to misconfigure. And then we're gonna go into post-compromise. So right after getting access to a credential, we'll look at what can we do with those credentials and we'll, we'll kind of explore a little bit of, you know, what, what are some things that we could, you know, potentially attack? What, uh, what are some escalation paths? What are tools that we can use to, to perform additional attacks? Following that and directly related to post-compromise is gonna come the Azure subscription hierarchy uh, because knowing what subscriptions are, what resources are, knowing how the, the different roles and different permissioning 
is set up within Azure is going to help us understand better what we can get to. And then we're going to look at resource-specific issues. So in that section, it's going to be kind of a rapid fire. Here's just a few slides of some things that I think are some of the, the top most interesting things to just go after immediately and some things to be aware of. And then we're going to look at leveraging scanning tools because a lot of the times, and, and we'll discuss this once we get to the identifying attack service section, we can make our lives easier by leveraging scanning tools to, to find various you know, low-hanging low fruit in terms of vulnerabilities and help make our lives easier. Why Azure? Azure is one of the most popular pieces of software that I see utilized by a lot of the organizations that we test. So it's really, really popular due to a few reasons, right? We've got organizations that you know, historically have been Microsoft Active Directory shops, right? Like internal Microsoft Active Directory. And now they're, th they're thinking, okay, well, how can we make our employee force more productive remotely and pushing a lot of those resources to the cloud? And since Azure has that functionality of integrating internal on-prem AD with cloud-based Azure Active Directory, it makes it really easy for companies to move and um, have that have that access and, and have that cap those capabilities to have employee workforce utilize things like Office 365, SharePoint, that kind of stuff. Us as attackers, and honestly, like through a lot of the pen tests that we do, we tend to at least see some O365, some Azure usage throughout a lot of our engagements. One of the things to note here is that you know hybrid environments can potentially enable these cloud to on-prem pivoting potential paths. You know, us as attackers, if we're doing red teams, we're doing external assessments, or if we're doing even cloud-specific assessments, a lot of times what we're looking for now are how can we leverage credentials that we get during the engagement to attack Azure resources? Can we use that access to pivot? And it, it really ties heavily into the process from like the red teaming angle. You know, we can go through an engagement where let's say we password spray a credential and now we have that credential within Azure, what can we do within the context of Azure? You know, instead of having that traditional, you know, firewall approach, right? Where, you know, old school where you just have like the on-prem resources, now you got a VPN in to get to anything useful. A lot of the times what we're finding is that due to all these resources being publicly available, things like SharePoint, things like email, it makes it much more likely that we'll find things like sensitive data that's just readily available. In those cases, it's like, is it even worth pivoting internally if we have everything we need to to prove risk and show that there, there's you know, potential for sensitive data just out in SharePoint. One thing to note throughout today, a lot of the Azure pen testing techniques that I'm going to talk about will apply to different types of engagements. So I'm not going to be specifically talking about just Azure cloud assessments. But what you'll see is that learning about what you could do within the Azure cloud context will directly apply to things like red teaming engagements, external engagements, web apps, assume compromise, that kind of stuff. All right, so identifying attack surface. So depending on the assessment type, your attack surface might change. And like I mentioned on the previous slide, things like red team engagements, external engagements, cloud-specific engagements, a lot of times what the assessment type is is going to change what you're attacking. And knowing what to look for in these different scenarios is going to be really key. Throughout the section, I'm going to try to clear up some of the, the common confusing points that I see a lot of people have issues with. In my opinion, there are realistically three different ways that we can approach looking at attacking Azure resources. We've got external, which in, in most cases, this is looking at Azure resources from a traditional external network pen testing context. We're looking com completely unauthenticated, attacking public resources, looking at what hosts are available, what virtual machines are, are available to, to attack externally, what public buckets are out there, you know, storage, storage, that kind of stuff. One thing that I'll note throughout today's talk is that a lot of these things can overlap, and sometimes it's not super clear unless you, you discuss with the customer what they actually want tested. So I've had rules of engagement calls where it's like we've scoped a cloud assessment, but realistically, they're looking for something like an internal network assessment. So that's where this second bullet point comes from, an internal resource access level pen test. Think of this kind of like a traditional pen test internal to cloud environments. So Think of like having access to a virtual machine in a cloud environment where you're now assessing other cloud resources from that virtual machine. And a lot of, a lot of times the reason you would want to do something like this is due to you know, cloud-based systems not being under the same asset management. They might, have not, they might not have the same inventory. They might not be under the same patch cycles. Because if you think about it, if you deploy software, like let's say that you installed something like a SolarWinds Orion portal or something like that on a cloud-based virtual machine, 
a lot of times those specific pieces of software might not be under the same update cycles. So we still need to kind of assess internal cloud resources as well. And then the third option, and this is one of the more likely scenarios, is, is where we're actually provided API access, right? So we're actually authenticating to the cloud service where we have either a set of user credentials that have access to a subscription and we can read resources from the account. Or in some cases, we might even look at this as somewhat of an assumed compromise where we say, all right, who are your users of your Azure environment? Do you have developers? Do you have you know, other people that are, that are pushing different services and resources out to Azure? In those cases, we might say, okay, well, what would happen if this developer got compromised? What could they then do within the Azure context? Could they pivot? Could they escalate privileges and whatnot? I tend to try to look at Azure at attacks from these three angles. So external unauthenticated attacks, internal resource to resource attacks, and then internal API access level attacks. The other thing that I see a lot of confusion from is the difference between Azure resources and Microsoft 365. This is something where you, know, you hear the term Microsoft 365 and a lot of people kind of use that interchangeably with the term Azure. And one of the things that I, that I see that's really confusing is I see people that are like, okay, I got a user credential. And how do I now see all the virtual machines or how do I see all the databases? Well, the problem is that even though you have a credential, that does not necessarily mean that that account has had a role assigned to it within a subscription context. And we'll talk about subscriptions later on today more in more depth. But in general, Azure Resource Manager really relies on subscription access to hit any of these resources. So if we're looking at things like virtual machines, databases, storage, serverless technologies, that, that kind of stuff, those items are resources that have to be a part of a subscription. And in order to access any of that stuff at any level, even reader level access, you have to have that role applied to your Azure Active Directory user account. So the confusing thing here is that Microsoft 365 accounts, anytime you spin up a, a new Microsoft 365 account, new tenant, and you start you know, provisioning email and, and you know, accounts for, for users within your, your environment, they get Azure Active Directory accounts. So you can authenticate to Azure Active Directory, to Microsoft Online, and read data from the Microsoft Online side, but not necessarily the Azure Resource Manager side, unless you have a subscription. That's, that's something that I see pretty, pretty often confused, right? A lot, of, a lot of times people are like, okay, well, why aren't any of these Azure modules that you know, are part of PowerShell working? And it's likely because that, that user is not a member of a subscription. All right, so recon and external attacks. In this section, I'm gonna run through some of the key items that I just look for right off the bat. So if you said, all right, Bo, you are on a red team against an, 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 an environment or you are on a cloud pen test against this, this customer, one of the first things that I do is I, I try to identify Microsoft 365 usage. And one easy way you can do that is via this first URL here. So the first URL is this microsoftonline.com slash getuserrealm.srf. This URL, if you change that login username at the, the domain name of the company you're testing.com, what you'll get back is a page that looks similar to this, the screenshot here. So the screenshot shows a lot of information regarding that tenant, okay? So if that tenant exists, you will get information back whether or not they are using Active Directory Federation services, if they're just using managed uh, environment within, within Azure itself, where they're not using ADFS. But if they are using ADFS, here is a place that you'll actually get back the ADFS link that you would, you would end up getting redirected to for authentication. In my opinion, this is, this is a super useful, just right off, the, right off the bat thing to do to identify Microsoft 365 usage. The second link here is actually something that is really useful for identifying the tenant ID. The second URL, if you, if you add the target domain within that, within that URL to that open ID configuration URL, you'll get back a, a, um, the open ID uh, endpoints. And within those endpoints actually has the tenant ID, which the tenant ID can actually be useful later on if you got something like a, like a service principal credential to authenticate. The other thing we got to look at is user enumeration, because we'll, we're going to talk about password attacks in a moment. But in general, one of the first things that we like to do is, is identify valid users. So we'll go through our recon process, build out a list of users that we think are, are valid. We might scrape LinkedIn or whatever service to build out a good employee list, then mangle that into some email addresses, and then now try to identify which ones of those are actually legit. Because 
we want the most, I guess, like precise user list when we go into Password Spray. So there's a couple of ways we can do this. The first URL I have here is a link to a tool that I wrote called MSOL Spray, which we're also going to use for password spraying later on. This tool will tell you if users are invalid or not. Hitting the Microsoft OAuth endpoint is actually really verbose. The screenshot we have here at the bottom gives you kind of an example of some of the information you might get back. In this case, we'll see the user account does not exist in the directory. So that's, that's user enumeration, right? That tells us that that email that we tried to password spray with doesn't exist. One of the problems here is we are creating a failed login, right? So that's a potential uh, opportunity for detection. Another way is the second URL I have here is a tool that does username enumeration via OneDrive. So OneDrive has custom URLs as well that utilize the email address, um, and you can use that to identify in, in some cases. So another thing that I like to look for right off the bat are data that's in public Azure blobs. One of the things that you see, I would say the most news uh, uh, according to, or the, the most news articles associated with cloud environments is typically some, some sort of public bucket exposure, right? So think like Amazon S3 buckets that, you know, somebody put a bunch of data in, they just left it out on the internet, publicly available. So this is something we can look for in Azure as well. So Azure has storage and they use this, this term called blob storage for, for Azure blobs. So think, think folders here, because when you create a storage account in Azure, it actually uses the name the, that the customer provides it. And in a lot of cases, that might just be something as easy as customer name, right? The company name. The cool thing about Azure is that a lot of the services end up creating DNS entries for a lot of the different resources, which you'll actually see throughout a couple of the slides today, some of the, some of the services that do it as well. The storage accounts get in a DNS entry at storage account name .blob.core.windows.net if they created a storage account for, for blob storage. At that URL, if, if they create containers, those containers are essentially folders and you can create permissions based off of the container level or the blob level, blob level, or you can just make it private altogether. If you create a blob, create a blob storage where blob access policy, if you apply that blob access policy, that means basically that anyone who has a link directly to those blobs can access them. There's anonymous access to those specific blobs. So think kind of like, um, like if you go to share a file from like G Drive, I mean, you have to have that direct link, right? Like it's not, it's not directly something you would, you would typically enumerate publicly or be able to list out by just knowing the container. However, if the container itself allows for read access, then the container can be identified via brute forcing then the contents within that container, including the blobs, can be displayed as well. One tool to quickly kind of go about doing this is a tool called CloudEnum from Chris Moberly. This is one of my favorite tools for doing this across all three services because this hits Azure, AWS, and GCP. The cool thing about CloudEnum is it doesn't just hit Azure resources. It hits, or I'm sorry, it doesn't, it doesn't just hit storage buckets. It hits things like databases, virtual machines, web apps, and this is using that, that method that I mentioned earlier that we're just literally brute forcing DNS addresses. Take what you get back from these tools with a grain of salt because you know, anyone can go spin up resources with certain names if they are not taken already. Google storage blob wasn't taken. You could go potentially take that storage blob and have it as, as your own within your own account if it wasn't taken. If you're identifying buckets that are associated with a company's name, they're not necessarily 100% associated with them. So just keep that in mind. So after finding an open storage blob, one thing you could do is use uh, Azure Storage Explorer, which is another tool that you could use to actually connect to that storage blob and start analyzing the data there. I've actually I've had a couple assessments where I found public storage blobs and within the contents of the files that were stored out there were things like credentials for other blobs, you know, like protected buckets. One thing, one thing that's kind of a theme that we should kind of keep in mind too is Later on in engagement, if you get API access, if you actually are authenticating to the account that where the storage buckets are located, you can actually read the names of these different storage buckets, right? So you could determine based off of API level access, which ones are public as well. And this is something if you're doing just a straight up cloud audit, something you should be doing, right? You should be identifying via command line, right? Via, via the API, what resources are being publicly exposed. One of the most common ways that we end up getting access though is through password spraying. If you're not familiar with the term password spraying, password spraying is essentially the opposite of most brute forcing or traditional brute forcing attacks. Where traditional brute forcing, we're taking a list of passwords, like maybe you know, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 passwords, trying those against one account. The problem with that is that's gonna lock out accounts pretty quickly in most cases, right? Because a lot of 
a lot of account lockout policies are somewhere between like the five and 10 attempt threshold for locking out. So password spraying takes a different approach where instead of trying all those passwords against one account, we're gonna try one password against all of the accounts. So we'll say, all right, here's the entire user list that I have available through recon that I, that I enumerated, that I know are valid, and I'm gonna try the password season year, something like winter 2021. This is something we have really, really high success with. The cool thing about the different ways to authenticate to Azure is we can do this via command line. Another tool that I put together is one called MSOL Spray, um, which I mentioned for the enumeration part earlier, but it can also do password spraying. That, that's the primary purpose of it. But the cool thing is, is that because of how verbose the endpoint is, we get back information about the account in detail. So things like, is MFA enabled on the account? The reason that's, that's interesting is because this particular mechanism of, of validating an, a credential won't actually trigger things like push notifications. So it won't like automatically start the process for doing like the you know, SMS message or, or phone call based MFA. But it will tell you that MFA is there. And then later on in this presentation, I'll show you how you can take that cred and go find where maybe MFA is not enabled. If you're spraying with it and you find that the tenant doesn't exist, then maybe you have the wrong domain. If the user doesn't exist, we, we've already talked about user, user identification, right? Like we just take them out of the list. If the account is locked, disabled, there's actually like, like 200 or so different error codes that you can, you can hit here or get back. And a lot of them come back you know, with various uh, configuration around conditional access policies, which is that can be very, very useful for kind of figuring out where to go. One of the things that we end up coming up against, and I get a lot of questions about with regards to MSOL spray is, is this thing called Azure Smart Lockout. There's actually a couple different protection mechanisms within Azure for preventing password attacks. The first one is Azure Password Protection. And this is effectively like a password filter of sorts where you can say, I don't want my, my, any of my employees to pick any seasons or the company name for their passwords. So that will eliminate a lot of the common password spraying candidates. The other thing, Azure Smart Lockout, is something that <laughs> from the outside actually looks kind of terrifying because you start spraying these accounts and then now all of a sudden you're, you're seeing where now everything's locked out. <laughs> the problem is with, with how they display that information because in fact, you're not actually locking out any of those accounts. What's happening is Azure Smart Lockout is locking your IP address out. So it's effectively doing something similar to um, like a fail to ban of sorts where it's just blocking your IP address. So how do we get around that? We have to rotate IPs. And I, I see Mike Felch is here. So his tool, Fireprox, is great with MSOL spray. It works awesome. So Fireprox uses API gateway to spin up an endpoint that you can point MSOL spray at. And each of the authentication attempts that's going through MSOL spray, or I'm sorry, that's going through, the, through Fireprox will be rotated through different IP addresses. So every single authentication attempt will come from a different IP address. And that, in most cases, will get around smart lockout. Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about is authentication mechanisms. So this is really important to understand when it comes to anything cloud related. This is gonna cover different ways to configure things like, um, like how, how users authenticate to Azure and how on the back end that, that, that authentication actually functions. And then we're gonna talk pretty deeply about conditional access policies here and potential ways to bypass them. With Azure authentication, we've got more ways to authenticate than just username and password. Like we talked about spraying just now, right? You, you know, there are actually other ways you can, you can hit different endpoints within Azure using things like certificates. There's different APIs to hit. There's a few different multi-factor settings we need to consider that will differ for things like service counts and those that you know authenticate with certs. One thing that I would say that we should be looking for as well are put the potential for public keys getting, or I'm sorry, private keys getting posted to public forums, things like GitHub repositories. So GitHub has a lot of things to kind of deal with that now to prevent that from happening, but we still see it every once in a while. Realistically, finding and understanding these authentication points is going to be really key to, to us, us understanding how we're going to go through the flow of attacking an environment. On the cloud authentication side, there's a couple things to consider. This list is what I've collected together as what I think is like some of the more important things to consider when it comes to authentication. And we'll walk through each one of these. The first three items here, so password hash sync, pass-through authentication, ADFS, these are ways that we can configure how users are authenticating and how on the back end are being authenticated to our own environment. Certificate-based auth, we'll talk about conditional access policies, like I said, long-term access tokens for users that are authenticating via the APIs, and then legacy authentication portals. That's like the bane of most companies that we end up testing, where we end up getting in, tends to be legacy auth portals. 
Let's talk about the ways in which we can configure Azure. You have password hash synchronization. This is effectively a full clone of the, the user's credentials from your on-prem Active Directory environment into Azure Active Directory. So now anybody who's authenticating to Azure or services like O365, they're actually using their internal domain credential via email address directly against Azure Active Directory. All of that authentication happens within Azure. One of the main differences between that and pass-through authentication is instead of the credentials being validated in the cloud, they're actually being validated on-prem. So pass-through authentication, credentials are just not stored in the cloud at this point. And what happens is you have a, a service that runs on a server on-prem that anytime somebody tries to authenticate to Azure or Microsoft 365, that service says, hey, what is that credential they just typed in? Let me validate it locally. Okay, that's correct. Let them into Azure. So that's the main difference there. The third setup, and one of the more common setups that we end up seeing, is called Active Directory Federation Services. So the thing with, with ADFS is all the credentials, are, are they stay on-prem, first of all, and users end up getting redirected from the, the Microsoft Online portal to your ADFS server, which tends to be an on-prem server as well, to perform that authentication. Now, the reason that this is important is because this setup tends to visually look different than the, the previous two. The previous two setups, if you go to the Microsoft Online portal, you can authenticate directly there, and depending on which one, that credit will be validated. But with this setup, you cannot authenticate directly to the Microsoft Online portal. You will be redirected to an on-prem portal. So things like password spraying is gonna be different, right? Because you're gonna have to pivot your sprays accordingly, right? You're gonna have to actually attack on-prem systems at this point, which in, in general, I typically just intercept the request with Burp, like Burp Suite, and then just replay that request with different users. Conditional access policies. During any sort of offensive engagement that we do, we're commonly doing things like password attacks or phishing, where we're trying to get credentials, right? And there's a lot of times where we'll compromise a credential and the MFA that's in place can, can sometimes stop that activity. But there's definitely ways to phish and get sessions but in a lot of cases, we find where there's a lot of different protections that get put in place to prevent us from using those credentials. Microsoft 365 and Azure both have built-in MFA options by default. Generally, these are things like using the Authenticator app or OAuth, like an, uh, OAuth hardware token or SMS voice call. And these are free features in most cases. In addition to those, a brand new Microsoft account gets what's called security defaults enabled by default. <laughs> and this setting is actually really good. So if you spin up a brand new Microsoft 365 tenant and you create some users, they will get the security defaults policy applied to them. And why this is cool is because it, it does things like it requires users to register for MFA. It blocks legacy auth protocols. So things like Exchange Web Services, IMAP, the, the things that we end up as pen testers getting in with the most <laughs> will be blocked by default. So these are, these are already off for new, new customers, right? It requires MFA during authentication when necessary. So like if I'm authenticating from a new location, instead of it just allowing me in, I have to use MFA again. And then protect, and it protects privileges or protects privileged activities like getting access to the Azure portal. So it will block that by default. These are really awesome settings, right? Like these are things that you want enabled. However, a lot of companies tend to need more granular settings. So let's say that a company needs, like let's say they have like a C-suite of people, CEOs, CFOs, CTOs that don't like MFA. Sad, but it's reality, right? Like we have a lot of, a lot of companies that, that just, they, they want to make it easier on certain, certain employees. So they disable MFA for them. To do that, to, to create specific policies where you are providing that level of access to, to employees, you actually have to disable security defaults. The problem here is that when you, when you start disabling security defaults, now it's on whoever is configuring conditional access policies to start re-implementing these other things that were already protecting the account. That's where, in my opinion, that's where I see a lot of the configuration issues come to light. It's, it's when you know, they take the defaults that are actually pretty decent already, disable them, and then have to rebuild them, them themselves. So, what are conditional access policies? Well, they're, they're fine-grained controls for creating different levels of access for when a user can get in you know, with or without MFA. Things like the, the username, the location they're coming from, the devices, the actual device they're using, the application they're authenticating with, and there's also this thing called real-time risk, which can kind of provide an additional level of when are we gonna validate MFA. 
to give you another example, I've tested organizations where they've used conditional access policies to do things like allow single factor access to Microsoft 365 from their own IP space. So like their own on-prem network, but required MFA everywhere else. These are the types of scenarios that we end up seeing, things like that. Like I said, the bane of like most of the companies we end up testing tends to be legacy authentication portals. And the reason is because a lot of these legacy auth portals don't actually support MFA directly. So things like Exchange Web Services. This is a service where you can authenticate and read or send email. And it's something like I wrote a tool called MailSniper to you know, read email from, from Exchange Web Services. And whenever you enable MFA on an account, you either have to go disable Exchange Web Services altogether for the user, or you have to have them create an app-specific password for the, the things they need. So historically, why we have seen it enabled tends to be due to specific applications that employees need. So things like Outlook for Mac, it used to only support Exchange Web Services. They would create a rule that just says, all right, everyone who uses, uses Mac can hit Exchange Web Services. These different legacy portals can be completely blocked with, with conditional access policies. The thing that I think is kind of funny here is that if you look at the, the checkboxes on the right for under, under legacy auth clients, we've got Exchange Active Sync clients, and then you have other clients. So you have the ability to, to just allow Active Sync for some reason, and all of the other legacy auth gets grouped together. I, I don't understand completely why they left Active Sync out of this single bullet point. But what I've ended up seeing, what I've, what I've ended up finding out is that a lot of people don't click that Exchange Active Sync client and allow that, but they block everything else. So we'll talk about, again, in a few slides here, I'll show you how you, you figure out which portals are accessible. One thing that is kind of interesting is that Legacy Auth was supposed to be end of life last year, but due to COVID, it actually got pushed back to the second half of 2021. Another thing in it that you can, you, can, you can configure with conditional access policies are device platforms. Device platforms are basically the operating system in which the user is authenticating. The thing that's crazy about device platforms is it literally is just using the user agent string. To validate a user coming from an Android device, it literally is just saying, oh, you used an Android user agent. What that looks like is this, where you've got on the left authentication without a mobile user agent. So I'm basically logging into my account just with a web browser and I get my MFA prompt. Same exact account on the right, logging in, but I manipulated the user agent to be an Android mobile user agent and MFA was not applied. I've seen this on assessments where companies say, all right, if they're coming from a mobile device, no MFA. You know, things like that are things that we wanna be looking for. To help with finding this kind of stuff, I wrote another tool called MFA Suite. The whole point of it is to help us find these inconsistencies where the organization's trying to do a really good job by deploying MFA, but due to different conditional access policy configurations, they may have left one of these single factor. Basically what the tool does is it says, all right, give me, give me a set of credentials and I'm gonna just try it against all these different endpoints. So um, I've collected together a list here of what I think are some of the, the top endpoints to at least attempt to authenticate to. So we've got the Graph API, we've got the Azure Service Management API. We talked about Exchange Web Services. That's another super common one that we see exposed single factor. The actual web portal, we, we, we try to authenticate to. The web portal using a mobile agent, we try to authenticate to. We try to hit Active Sync. And like I said, because that is a separate checkbox, sometimes you'll find that everything else is two-factor, but Active Sync is allowed. And then finally, um, it also has the ability to hit ADFS. To run this, if you, if you want to try this, just be careful because it is trying to authenticate to that, that specific account six times, seven if you use ADFS. Basically, it's a PowerShell script that you just import into a PowerShell session, and then you would run invoke-mfa sweep and give it a username and a password. And it will try to go authenticate single factor each one of those and let you know which ones are single factor. You can also check ADFS. And what it does is we'll try to check that, that initial URL that I, I showed you on the recon slides, where it will point us to that ADFS endpoint and attempt to authenticate to that ADFS endpoint using single factor. And if it does end up getting redirected to, to the multi-factor pages, it will tell you that it's an indication of MFA being in place for that user. All right, post-compromise. After we get credentials, what are we gonna do next? So this section is really gonna have some go-to actions for, for basically following successful compromise of credentials. And I teach four-day class on this. So this is by no means like, you know, everything that you would do, but I'm gonna try to just give you some of the, the high-level high approach to how I would go through uh, post-compromise here. So first off, who do we have access as, right? Like we just got a credential. We need to figure out who that user is. Is that user just an Azure Active Directory user or do they also have roles applied within a subscription? These are things that we typically might wanna figure out. 
is MFA enabled? What can we access? If, if we do have access to a subscription, can we get to access to, or can we read data from things like web applications, storage, who the administrator, how are we going to escalate privileges? And then additionally, if you have access to the, the various Microsoft Graph API endpoints, you can actually enumerate some security protections, things like ATP licenses. After getting a cred, <laughs> one of the first things I typically like to do is just see if we can get to the Azure portal directly. One thing that's kind of cool is that the Azure portal actually relies on the same Microsoft Online authentication. So if you fish a credential with something like Evil Gen X 2, and you have a session to, let's say, just Office 365, right? Like you're, you're in their Outlook account, right? Like email. That same session can be utilized to attempt to authenticate to the Azure portal. And if they have not disabled access directly to the Azure portal, you may be able to just go to portal.azure.com and you can be presented with the actual Azure portal itself. Why is that useful? Well, when we started doing recon, we built out an employee list for password spraying. We use that list to attempt to compromise accounts. Well, let's say that we did compromise an account. Now, let's go get the full user list, which you can get from either the global address list, or if you have access to the Azure portal, you can get it from the Azure Active Directory users page as well. And here's the thing, even if the portal's locked down, a lot of times the PowerShell commandlets, the AZ CLI tools will still work because locking that down is actually a little bit more difficult. It's not just a checkbox. There's a command that you have to run as a, as a global admin to disable access to the command line for all users. I have actually, like I've had customers where they blocked access to the Azure portal via different conditional access policies, maybe, maybe it's MFA, but I was able to hit that same API via command line single vector. So things to consider. So when it comes to command line access, this is in most cases gonna be where we wanna operate. When it comes to the different PowerShell modules that are available to us, I wanna explain kind of the, the, some of the key differences here. So we have the AZ PowerShell module. The AZ PowerShell module is realistically how we're going to enumerate and identify things from subscriptions. So things like resources within subscriptions, virtual machines, databases, storage accounts, that kind of stuff. The Azure AD and MS Online modules are heavily focused on just the, the, the Azure AD side of the house. Those modules will allow us to do things like enumerate you know, groups, user accounts, service principles, that kind of stuff. There's also Azure CLI tools, which is another cross-platform tool, if you don't like PowerShell, that will, that will work as well. We only have 15 minutes left of class, so I don't have a whole lot of time to just throw a bunch of commands at you. But what I did is I put together this list of cloud pen test cheat sheets and it's not just Azure specific. So I've got AWS, GCP, and Azure in there. But in those Cloud Pentest cheat sheets, there's plenty of commands to get you started with all three of these different, different tools. All right, let's talk about the Azure subscription hierarchy. So after we've been able to get into an account, we now have CLI access potentially, or even portal access. Let's say that we did get access to a subscription. What does that even mean? Organizations, at the top level, you have the tenant. The tenant contains the ability to create different licenses for different services, different products. But when we talk about subscriptions, subscriptions are effectively where we're going to create different resources like virtual machines, databases, that kind of stuff. One of the things that I think is, is often confusing is software licenses like Microsoft 365, they can be purchased and those licenses can be applied to users, but that is not a subscription, okay? That's one of the things that, again, like I, I think that that can be a little bit confusing for some people because just because it's all in Azure doesn't necessarily mean that it is Azure subscriptions. I wanna make that clear because when we talk about subscriptions, we're not specifically talking about Microsoft 365 licenses. Azure AD has multiple tiers that can be purchased. And under those tiers, well, I guess in general, like subscriptions tend to be grouped for billing purposes. The reasoning behind why, why a user might create multiple subscriptions is completely dependent on them. Technically, you could have a tenant that has you know, 100 subscriptions or even 1,000 subscriptions. It all depends on what their use cases are. But in general, they might divide it up billing purpose-wise, right? Like they might want to know how much their development shop is spending versus their production environment versus the lab, that kind of stuff. And, and one of the other key things to understand with subscriptions is just because you authenticate and you see that you have access to a subscription, doesn't mean you have access to all of the subscriptions. So sometimes you might find that authenticating, you see a subscription there, but the resources within that subscription are the only things that you have access to. However, 
unless you've been provided roles within each of the other subscriptions within that account, you wouldn't see them. Under subscriptions, we have resources and resource groups. In my opinion, one of the, the best first things that we need to do is identify what is the purpose of the subscription that we're operating in. And a lot of times you'll see naming conventions that can help us identify what the purpose is, right? Like you might see the name prod or dev, it can kind of help you at least understand a little bit about the subscription. But each subscription can have resource groups under it. Things like we might group web application with a, a database that, you know, they have some sort of interaction, right, within a resource group. But at the end of the day, those are realistically just folders that can help us organize things. But the resources are realistically where we want to look. And why, why the different levels are important is because each resource, each resource group, each subscription can have policies and permissions applied to each level. The roles that you get applied to subscriptions at different levels are hierarchical. They actually get inherited down. So if you apply, let's say, owner level access to the subscription, that means every single resource, every single resource group under it, that user is an owner of. There are some default roles within Azure to know about. First off, subscriptions can have, well, in, in general, any resource, including subscriptions, can have owner level access, which is generally like the full control access. Contributors have all the same rights, except they can't change permissions. Reader level access can only read attributes. And you know, if we're doing like a cloud-based pen test, generally what I ask for is just reader level access, where we're authenticating to the account and able to read all of the resources. And then another common one is a user access administrator. We've kind of gone over a little bit of post-compromise, a little bit of what, what to do, what, what, what are the things to know about. And <laughs> these next few slides are really just rapid fire, high level things that I wanted to cover as things to look for immediately. So each of these topics can be dug into much deeper, but having a general awareness of them, I think will be a good place to start. First up, serverless environment variables. So this is something that I have had great luck in finding clear text credentials just applied to things like Azure Functions. So serverless technology in general. So if you looked at AWS, they have Lambda Functions, Azure has Azure Functions. The whole idea of these are to create some sort of action that gets triggered based off of some other thing. You know, with Azure, you can set up things like, um, hey, if a user uploads a file to this OneDrive share, trigger this flow to go run this thing on that file. That could be a, a function. But what we end up seeing a lot of times is where organizations include secrets in those Azure functions directly. And if you have reader level permission to those functions, you can actually call out and see those plain text values as well. What they should be doing is pulling those secrets from key vaults. I've had multiple assessments now where I'm, I'm doing cloud-based pen tests where we're provided a reader level credential to an account. We read the different functions and see credentials within those functions and then are able to use those to escalate and get additional access. This is gonna be kind of a rapid fire, just high level, high level overview of a few things. Another thing is instance metadata service. So this is something that across the cloud services, I think that a lot of people might not understand is actually something that exists. And it honestly, when I first learned about it, I was like, wow, really? <laughs> Whenever you spin up a virtual machine within a cloud environment, whether it be AWS, GCP, Azure, a, an actual web application gets spun up on an endpoint at the non-routable IP address of 169.254.169.254. And the whole point of this is to be a way for that, that server to help orient itself because of how dynamic cloud services are. So this metadata endpoint can have all kinds of stuff. Like it could have data about the account, data about the subscription, data about resources, that kind of thing. You can also apply managed identities to two different resources. So things like a virtual machine may have a managed identity applied to it where it can assume a set of credentials for accessing other resources. In the case of having access to that metadata endpoint, you can actually call the endpoint and get, get a set of temporary credentials. If you look at like some of the, the bigger AWS compromises, they've hit the metadata service via web attacks, things like server-side request forgery, because the whole point of this is that it's, it's, you know, it's supposed to not be accessible externally, right? It's supposed to only be reachable by the local host. However, through vulnerabilities like server-side request forgery, we can cause an application to send a request on behalf of the server itself to its local host, i.e. the metadata service. And so sometimes via web application vulnerabilities, you might be able to actually hit the metadata service and get more credentials. Another thing, so we talked about having access via uh, the MS Online PowerShell module to Azure AD. Anytime you have a user credential that 
has access to something like Microsoft 365. Those user credentials can typically read data from Azure Active Directory, and you could use the MS Online module to do that. One of the things that we look for on pretty much every pen test are when credentials end up getting stored in actual Active Directory user attributes. And what I mean by that is, occasionally you'll find where like maybe a help desk engineer has created a new user and for some reason they put the user's password as an attribute whether it be like in the description field or 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 wherever and so this is something that like historically we've done a lot of and we found a lot of credentials internally on traditional on-prem environments but if you want to look for the same thing in the cloud you can use the ms online module and then i wrote a quick one-liner here to go look for the term password and you can change that too because like sometimes it might be cred or it might be i don't know like uh login that kind of thing Service principle hijacking. This is this is a topic that I literally have like, I don't know, 10 slides on um, in my class. So I'll try to describe this as quickly as I can. Here's the thing with this particular issue that I think is, is fascinating. Anytime you create a Microsoft 365 account, by default, that account will spin up 200 service principles within your tenant, okay? And none of them are actually listed in like the Azure GUI portal under the users section. You have to go to like the service principles to actually see them. The thing is they all have varying levels of permissions on Microsoft Graph. This can present a, an interesting privilege escalation opportunity because let's say that you compromised an account for some, somebody that is an application administrator. The application administrator role allows users or allows, allows the application administrator to change passwords or certificates for service principles. So even these default ones that get spun up, one thing you could potentially do is identify an account that has a higher level privilege than your application administrator. Now, one thing that application administrators typically can't do are things like create new users or modify the directory. They can only do things against applications, so things like service principles. Now, if you change the password or add a new password or add a certificate for a service principle that has that permission, you have now escalated privileges. So that's potential privilege escalation opportunity. Key vaults are another thing that is pretty interesting to look at when it comes to, to Azure-based pen testing. So Key Vault is, is what it sounds like, right? It's a vault for storing your passwords and other secrets. Other cloud apps and services can typically use these, you know, i.e. like Azure Functions should be. <laughs> and it's easy to store things like SSL, TLS certs. Many times like the data you want access to might require additional credentials. And to get them, you might it might be as easy as just like getting access to the Key Vault. Now, one thing that is kind of interesting about key vaults is that by default, only the owner of a key vault can actually access those keys. However, contributors have the ability to actually modify certain permissions on key vaults. So as a contributor to a key vault, like let's say that you got access to a contributor account for a key vault and attempted to read keys from that, that vault, you'll get access denied. But the thing that's crazy is that contributors can actually modify their own permissions to give them the read permissions they need to actually read data from those key vaults. Something to definitely keep an eye out for. Last thing on these, these key things to look at is getting data, right? Like one of the key things that we wanna do as pen testers at Red Teamers is what data can we get to? And one of the in, more interesting approaches to this is just doing what's called a compliance search in Microsoft 365. So if you get global admin, or, or even if you compromise a member of the eDiscovery manager role, you can actually search and report across all of the Microsoft 365 services. So you can actually report across things like, you can search for things like passwords, secrets, all that stuff in the entire organization's email, all the Skype messages, all the Teams messages, all the SharePoint sites, all the OneDrive accounts, and find where the sensitive data actually is. Historically, we've on-prem, I wrote MailSniper to search through email for that specific purpose, but now this is like that on steroids. So we did this in an org where compromise after compromising global admin, this helped us identify potentially sensitive data that was in email and chat and stuff. To, to wrap things up here, I'm gonna talk about scanning tools real quick because this is something that is very, very important to, to how we're gonna approach assessing a cloud infrastructure from an automated perspective. Like I said, there's multiple angles that we gotta kind of look at, looking at Azure from. First one being the external, second one being internal access via, via like a virtual machine to other resources within that account. And then the third thing would be API level access. So Having the ability to run scans can help us quickly identify certain vulnerabilities, things like low-hanging fruit. But this might not be something you run on like a red team because this can be a bit noisy, right? And generally, all we need is an account to read permissions from, from the different resources. So one of my favorite tools for this is Scout Suite. 
by NCC Group. The cool thing about Scout Suite is it's multi-cloud. It supports you know AWS, Azure, GCP. But this is one of the one of the first things that I typically end up running on an assessment because I would like to get data back quickly about the account so I understand like what's there. In some cases, we might be testing 100,000 resources, and in order to do a good job of kind of getting through that data quickly, we need to automate some of that. And so Scout Suite's a good tool for that. Um, another slide here with a few different tools to look at. If we want to like look at doing a, a full-on download of the entire Azure Active Directory data, Road Tools is like the way to go. Road Tools is, is an amazing tool. It's one of my favorites after getting access to a user credential. So Road Tools and Road Recon will go and actually copy off all the users, all the you know MFA information, um, service principal information, that kind of stuff. Groups, so you can actually like look through that data offline as opposed to just running a bunch of queries directly while you're testing. Then PowerZure and Microburst are two amazing PowerShell tools for for doing all kinds of this stuff that we were talking about earlier. For you know doing post post compromise, recon, dumping key vaults, that kind of stuff. Amazing tools if you want to help if you want help with automating some of that approach. StormSpotter and Azure Hound, great post compromise tools for doing things like finding paths of escalation. So if you're familiar with Bloodhound, Azure Hound is the Azure equivalent of that, where we're now using the ability to to identify resource permissions and potential privilege escalation opportunities there. All right, so key takeaways for today. Recon is absolutely the key for us, right? To understanding cloud asset usage. You know, being able to identify publicly available resources, anything like that, is gonna help drive how we're gonna attack that company. Cloud attack service is gonna enable us in you know, multiple ways to gain access. So we talked about API level access, looking at different ways to get around conditional access policies, that kind of thing. Configuration of cloud resources is still a wild west. It really is, and it's changing daily. A lot of the conditional access policies that you put in place today might not be you know, efficient tomorrow because there's new services that get spun up, that kind of stuff. Key methods for gaining a foothold are gonna include you know, things like, like I, like I mentioned, you know, key disclosure, public repositories that have keys in them, pa performing password attacks, phishing for access, ultimately potential remote code execution. If we can get some sort of web app vulnerability or even command injection, that kind of thing, we might be able to read data from that metadata service. And then situational awareness after we get access is gonna help drive our decisions post-compromise. So like I said, you know, today's, today's talk was a lot of just, hey, here's how you can, you can use some of this information to get started. But I do teach a four-day class on this. And uh, yeah, I hope, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I will be, I'll be hanging out for a little bit to answer any questions, because I know we didn't, we didn't stop at all in there for questions. So. If you guys got questions, feel free to throw them at me. <laughs> oh, they got questions, Bo. They oh, got man. questions. First of all, hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for this Black Hills Information Security webcast. If you ever need a pen test, a threat hunt, a threat team, you know where to find us. We're going to go into overtime right now. So we're, this is what we call post-show banter. So if you need to leave, totally understand. But we're going to stick around and answer it rapid-fire questions as best we can. And so we're going to give Bo about 10 to 15 minutes, unless we run out of questions. First question, Bo. Let me go ahead and... Take a look. Uh, it's only like 72 or no. There's not oh, God. Uh, there's not that many. Are Microsoft Azure admins prevented from seeing blobs or data without a policy? And with a policy, are Microsoft admins still able to access a particular data store across any cluster? I think that's two questions. So they would they would need certain permissions to those to those blobs, right? Like they would need either viewer or reader level permissions in most cases. But if they're an admin, if it's like a global admin, then they can give themselves access. Fun fun fact, there's actually a checkbox in, in Azure. If you're a global admin, you can actually give yourself user access administrator across all of the subscriptions within that tenant. And it literally is a checkbox. So if you have global admin access, you just go click that checkbox <laughs> and now you're user access administrator to everything. And if you're an admin, yes, you you have access to all of the subscriptions. And previous engagements, have you encountered smart lockout and how has that limited your access attempts? Yep, yeah, yeah. so that's, I, I, I talked about that a little bit on, on the password spring section, definitely have come up against it. Uh, but these days I pretty much just, you know, combine uh, Mike's tool, uh, Fireprox with MSOL spray to rotate IP addresses to get around that. Yeah, whenever I play backdoors or breaches with people, I, I always, tell them about Fireprox. And the reason why I want them to know that it exists is because all of your way of doing defensive is not gonna work anymore now that Fireprox, like, <laughs> it seems like, well, that does change things, doesn't it? And like, yeah, oh, yeah. Look, look at these tools here. <laughs> uh, is there a port, speaking of Fireprox, is there a port scanning equivalent for Fireprox? 
So I, th I like that's definitely a question for Mike, but I think that um, you know it's it's mainly URL based, and so you pointed out a specific URL. So if you wanted to do something like a port scan where you're rotating IPs, I think proxy cannon might be a better option for that. Okay. This question seems really important. Do you okay. need approval before running these tests? So you you need, you need approval with the company you're testing, right? But not Azure. So historically, if you went back like five years or so, you used to have to fill out an authorization form where where you used to have to say like, all right, this is the company I'm testing. This is like the bandwidth I'm going to end up being using during the test and all that stuff. But Azure, AWS, GCP, they've all been like, eh, we don't need that information anymore. Just, just, just as long as you got authorization from the customer, we're good. And then generally, they just don't want you, you attacking their own infrastructure or like their employees. <laughs> like they don't want you like phishing Microsoft employees to get access to the customer you're pen testing. <laughs> That'd be bad. I think this is a really important question too for a lot of the pe people here who are blue team. And we do get a lot of blue teamers that come and they want to see how the attacks work and see what they can fix and make adjustments to. So what kind of alerts are being generated on the customer side? How stealthy are these or how hard are they to hunt for? Well, it depends across, you know, it depends on which attacks we're talking about, right? Um, something like password spraying, I mean, it shows up. There are, there, there are rules that you can put in place. Actually, I, I saw a blog post a couple days ago talking about how to identify it, I think with Sentinel. And I, so if you look through like my Twitter history, um, I think it was like maybe like yesterday, the day before, I retweeted somebody who um, posted a blog for, for detecting password spraying specifically in Azure. Um, so yeah, there's definitely logs. <laughs> Uh, and that's Daft Hack, Daft Hack on Twitter. Uh, so if you want to find his Twitter account, Daft, D-A-F-T-H-A-C-K. Uh, if you only access with read only, is that less likely to be noticed? I mean, generally, if if you are given an account, I mean, they know about it, right? They know <clears throat> about that access. And it, I guess it kind of comes down to what alerting they have up in play as well. But you know, looking at at you know just specific access to resources is something that could be potentially alerted on. So reading from key vaults, reading from storage buckets, that kind of stuff can be definitely alerted on. But I, you know, I would I would say that you know a lot of the maturity that we've seen across organizations haven't been at that level. Uh, how effective has Azure Identity, old Azure ATP, on domain controllers been at detecting your Azure activities while pen testing? I would say we haven't had a whole lot of customers where they have either been using that or, or um, you know, brought up alerting based off of based off of ATP. So I, I don't really have a whole lot of insight into you know that specific alert mechanism. I wonder if there's some Azure people here that are like, yes, yeah. Question about your class: Does breaching the cloud training include labs? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We have it's somewhere between four and five a day, usually uh, four or five labs a day, and they range from you know things like password spraying to privilege escalation to creating backdoors, service principle backdoors, that kind of stuff. We set up an entire C2 infrastructure with domain fronting, fun stuff. <laughs> Did you ever get caught through O365 impossible travel alerts? Is it worth it monitoring it? So yes, yes, definitely to both questions. Definitely worth monitoring for it. Definitely worth you know, keeping an eye out for it. Uh, however, I will say that I have had like the the craziest luck sometimes when it comes to where we can actually authenticate from. So I, I think like ideally, like if you're fishing for credentials, you know, with something like like Evil Gen X, you want that authenticated session to be coming from the same IP address, right? So like if they're authenticating through you, that IP address that's authenticating should be the same IP address that you end up using that session from. So in most cases, you want to actually point your browser that you want to use for using that, that authentic authenticated session through your Evil Gen X server as well. So it looks like all of that access is coming from the same location. Um, I will say that I have had occasions where I didn't do that fished a credential, and then attempted to use that session on another browser from another IP address, and that did not work. But I have had luck where, you know, we see like things like MFA in place, 
and you know maybe maybe we've we password sprayed and I, I don't see any single factor access i want to access outlook so i go to log in to see if there's mfa and <laughs> i've had occasions where i go to log in and it's like automatically calling or automatically doing the push notification to the user so i've had occasions where it's like you know you go to check and it's oh it's calling them right now <laughs> and in those cases i've actually had occurrences where the user is just like oh yeah microsoft that's that's normal hit the pound key and let them in <laughs> and give us access to the account so yeah um, it ranges yeah. is there anything in common between ad or and azure ad or or there is no reusable knowledge yeah i mean so you know setting up accounts is pretty similar um you know how you authenticate is very different right like there's no kerberos um, authentication to Azure AD. A lot of it's just you know OAuth based authentication, but there there's you know there's a lot of similarities. There's you know you don't have a lot of the same things like GPOs that you can deploy to Azure, you know things like that. But I would say that you know at least some of the knowledge is similar. Have you experienced a time where Microsoft seems to detect Firefox and throw false information at you? Um, I haven't yet. No, um, I, I have, I've had occasions where. I have seen certain regions start to get locked out, which is honestly like I'm not entirely sure what's happening there. But I've seen where like I start using Firefox in US East One, right? And it's rotating IPs, and then I start getting lockout alerts. And then you know I'm like, well, it's rotating. Why is that happening? Switch over to like US East Two, and now no more lockout alerts. So I'm not sure if that's just them like maybe doing some identification of the region specifically or what, but um, yeah, that's the closest I've gotten to it. Does Microsoft Security Center provide any detection related to this type of testing? Yeah, I think they do. I mean, again, like Red Teamer, uh, so I, I believe they do. Um, I, I've seen definitely seen a few alerts come from customers on uh, Microsoft Security Center, um, so yeah. And I think one of the last questions we'll ask is, how much of the breach in the cloud content has changed since it was offered last year? That's a good question. So the first time I saw it was April of 2020, I think. Either April or May. And it was May. It was May. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so May 2020. And every single course, every or every single version that I've taught since then, which I, I think I've taught it about five or six times since then, has had at least something changed. It's usually small stuff, though. It's usually nothing like major, major, major. Usually it's, it's things that I've, like new, like breakthrough things that I've added. But I would say like somewhere between like the 40 to 50 slide mark. Actually, some labs have completely changed due to some of the labs have completely changed due to just like things breaking or, or you know, different ways that Azure has actually changed, you know, things like, for example, authenticating with the um, AZ PowerShell module. Like that used to create a session token in one place, but now it uses a completely different set of uh, credential storage on disk. So things like that, like it changed, but it's not like crazy. Last question, I think will be, uh, it's kind of long, so just stick with me. Okay. What is your take on Azure Enterprise app registration for persistence? Software vendors are always asking for all kinds of excessive permissions when configuring SSO. So another directory.readwrite.all would likely, most likely go unnoticed. Yep, yeah, yeah, so I actually have a lab in, in the class for that specific thing. So creating an OAuth application or you know an application within within the Azure tenant is something that is super, honestly, like really popular uh, right now. Even, even the last couple of years where they have the ability to create applications within, within Azure and then provide certain permissions to those applications. So, to give like an example here, you might create an application, like you said, with directory read write all, where that application has that permission to read access or write access to the directory. The other thing that we look at is phishing and doing, you know, you know, remote compromise against users via OAuth attacks. So if you can actually convince a user to click consent on the application prompt, then that application can potentially have permissions within their own account. And that's something that we see in the news uh, more and more often, where you know users are consenting to permissions. And, and honestly, like if you think about it, like from a 
you know, an application, like, a, like, let's say you have like your mobile phone, right? And you, you know, go to install a new app and it says, you know, all right, this application wants access to your contacts. It wants access to email. Um, and you're just like, yeah, sure, whatever. It's the app I want. <laughs> that's, that's essentially the equivalent of Azure OAuth application consent phishing, where we create an application with an tenant, fish with that, that application. They just get a page that just says, hey, this, page, this, uh, this application wants permission to these things. Okay, sure. Um, they click consent. Now that application can read that data. So yeah, I think it's, um, it's definitely something to be aware of, something that I teach in the class too. All right. Uh, my last shameless plug for myself is one June 10th, I'm doing a live Black Hill webcast on how to give a presentation. And so it's a presentation on giving presentations wrapped within a presentation. It's the inception presentation. And so if you're interested in sharing your knowledge, if you have ever been asked or wanted to submit to a, a call for papers and you were shy or embarrassed or you weren't quite sure what to do or whatever the case is, but you wanted to start sharing your knowledge with others, then come to June 10th and I'm going to give a presentation on presentations that is going to be so meta using science and stuff where you're like, wait, you're in my brain right now. I'm like, yes, I am. Because I know exactly what you're thinking. All right, so with that, uh, Bo, any final words? Yeah, if you're looking for a job, go to his, uh, go to Jason's um, live streams that he does. He's like the, the man at getting people hired, so. <laughs> Thanks, Bo. Yeah, we're at 93 right now. We're almost on our 100th viewer getting a new job. That is so awesome. Yeah, all right. Hey, thanks, everyone. I appreciate you guys coming so much. Um, yeah, definitely uh, let me know if, if, you, uh, if you have any questions or anything uh, yep. later on. Thanks, Bo. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for being here on today's Black Hills Information Security webcast. If you ever need us, you know where to find us. Talk to you later. Bye. And yeah. ending the webinar. <laughs>